Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. We are absolutely thrilled this week to be joined by two truly incredible individuals, Daniela DeSantos and Rosie Allister. Um, I don't have time to go through just all the amazing work that they have done within the veterinary profession, but hopefully as this episode unfolds, you'll find out a lot more about these two truly brilliant individuals. And this week we're talking about the really important topic of microaggressions and really trying to understand exactly how that impacts individuals within our profession. In our clinical segment this week, we are going to start a series of discussions about endocrine disease, starting with the truly (laughs) inspiring, interesting, I'm not sure, hypothyroidism. Right, well, listen, we're so... Uh, thrilled, honoured to be joined by two guests. Sometimes we like to do that, and it's <laughs> always a bit exciting today. Um, so uh, we're we're joined um by Daniela and Rosie, and you will know both of these incredible women. But um, uh, Rosie has been on the podcast before, um, and we've talked about lots of things. Um, but I think it's important before we start that we make sure that everyone knows who everyone is. So, um, uh, just to start, Daniela, I don't know if you want to just uh, introduce yourself to the listeners, and also. Um, just a little bit about your kind of veterinary background, if that's okay. Sure. So uh, my name is Daniela Dos Santos, and I'm a small animal and exotic pet vet, primarily based in the southeast, have been all my career. Uh, graduated only in 2012, so relatively new out, although I like to think so, but that's almost a decade. Maybe I'm not as new out as I think. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, um, I am a past president of the British Veterinary Association, or as I like to call it, a has-been. <laughs> oh, God. Oh no, I'm sure that's not what other people call you. Um, And you were fortunate stroke, not fortunate, unfortunate to maybe be involved in that role at a certain sort of time in the veterinary profession, um, which actually I think a lot of people are probably very grateful for. Um, Did you imagine that your presidency would be like that? (laughs) Oh no. Um, So it was actually an honour, you know, exceptionally difficult, but an absolute honour and I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else. So yeah, I was president, BVA president on Brexit day, an official Brexit day, which comes with it, all the politics behind the scenes that actually most day-to-day vets just aren't aware of you know why would you be um so I was dealing with all of that and then all of a sudden on my birthday a global pandemic was declared and then it all just went a, a bit I don't know I don't know what you want to call it really strange um it's still a bit strange now but uh it was an absolute honor to be in the position I was in wow gosh it's funny isn't it when you talk about you know I think we see you know people in your sort of position doing x y and z but actually I think that's a really interesting point is that no one can understand, particularly when the government's involved, <laughs> what kind of goes on behind the scenes of all that kind of stuff. And and um, crazy. I'm sure you'll look back at that time with, with um, a whole host of different <laughs> kind of emotions. But we're th- thank you for your service. <laughs> so, and and your rapid ageing process. No, I'm joking. Uh, you, must, <laughs> you must. I came out of it without a single grey hair. I thought I was going to come out of it with lots of grey hairs. And I haven't got a single one. So, I'm, you know, that's one of the proudest moments of my life. I did three years as a BV officer and through a pandemic and no grey hair. I think that's a pretty incredible achievement. I've had two children and I have a full head of grey hair. So, I mean, it's, you know, it swings in roundabouts. Um, okay, so Rosie, as I said, you've been on before. Um, you're a friend of the show. and <laughs> But um, if you could just introduce yourself to listeners that would be great yeah thank you Scott it's great to be back and it's great to be on with you as well Daniela so I'm Dr Rosie Allister I'm fine to call me Rosie during this podcast Scott and (laughs) I'm I'm 
I work partly as the manager for VetLife Helpline. VetLife Helpline is the 24-hour support service available to everybody in the veterinary community. So veterinary nurses, student nurses, vets, student vets, people working front of house in veterinary practices, people working in industry. If you're in the veterinary community, VetLife Helpline is available 24 hours a day, every day. I consider that to be one of the, my job to be one of the best jobs in vet because I get to work alongside an absolutely incredible group of volunteers who provide that support service. So that's part of what I do. I spend some of the rest of my time. Um, I do research into veterinary mental health. I'm particularly interested in suicide prevention and support around the transition to practice. Um, so there's two different in research interests that I have. I also do quite a lot of lecturing and training and consultancy for vets around mental health in work. Amazing. And again, I think, you know, there's a similar theme there as far as I think the talking about kind of the behind the scenes stuff. Like I think that, you know, people understand what vet life is and they understand what it might be able to offer them. Um, and obviously a hugely important service. But I think when you start to talk about, you know, the volunteers, obviously they're kind of nameless, faceless people and that for a good reason, but actually they probably are slightly unsung as far as the contribution that they make to that amazing service and and I think that's yeah so that's an important show too but but again actually you know um jokes aside you know we're uh, uh, again a huge amount of amazing work that you've done and and you know continue continue to contribute in such an amazing way so we're very thankful for that too um so it's interesting this is actually very interesting for me too because we have come together um as a as a three um for the purposes of recording this podcast but actually um, the connection was over a particular subject and we've never actually done this before as far as kind of being driven by um, a topic um, and I think that's good because we're kind of pushing, for me we're kind of pushing a, in a different sort of direction. So we're here today really to talk about the overarching theme of microaggression and I think this is really interesting because um, there have been recent campaigns that have been um, in the, the veterinary press um, that have highlighted microaggression and and the effect that that can have on various different um, I don't know what the right word is communities or or, or various different uh, 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 I, I am struggling for the right word various different sort of sectors of our of our veterinary community um, and then actually leading on from that there has been a debate uh, about um, that campaign um, and microaggression generally and. Uh, certainly some people who are, have been deeply affected by that sort of thing and, and, and can speak from that sort of perspective. And then other people that maybe don't um, have as much of a, maybe an understanding of exactly how it impacts people um, uh, in the profession. So I've done a terrible job actually of just summarising that. Actually, that was, I, I feel that <laughs> that all just kind of came out. But um, I wonder, Danielle, if you can start and more eloquently help us uh, understanding really what uh, microaggression is um, and why why there was a need to talk about it in the first place. Yeah, so um, I think your introduction was great, by the way, but um, so, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, a bit of background about where this actual campaign came from. So this campaign, the origins of this campaign, uh, 2019, when I first became BVA officer and I pushed for a discrimination survey of the profession and it was the first one we'd ever done. Now, interestingly, it had two phases. Its first phase was more of a sort of a fact-finding mission. If you've been discriminated against or witnessed discrimination, come and talk to us. Um, 
And we had well over 2,000 responses, well, well over 2,000 responses. Um, and I personally, I was the only one, but I personally read every single one of the free text responses in there. Um, and some of the things in there were absolutely horrendous. And when the results came out, they were pretty shocking. Um, you know, the results showed that far more than we would ever want to accept discrimination was happening in the profession. Um, you were most likely to be discriminated against on the basis of your gender, which probably, if you think about the demographics of our profession, isn't that surprising. But actually, um, the second most common form of uh, discrimination was race. About, at the time, 3% of the profession identified as from a, a Black or minority ethnic background, which to me was pretty shocking. Now, the reason I bring up this discrimination survey is because I think there's parallels to what's happened with the microaggression survey. So when this survey first came out, we weren't asking those who hadn't experienced to tell us. We wanted to hear from those who had. And straight away, there was a group of people going, well, this is not representative. You didn't actually give us the option to say, no, we haven't experienced it. So I went, OK, challenge accepted. Here is a second survey. Everyone respond whether you've been discriminated against or not. And guess what? Pretty much identical responses, right? I, pretty much identical. So I'd proven beyond a doubt that there was a problem here. And it's interesting because it's really difficult to reflect back on yourself because those, res those results were really uncomfortable, right? So the profession, I put it as three, three categories, right? The really vocal people are like, what are you talking about? We're not at all like this. This is nonsense. The other end, the people who were, who were the brave people who had witnessed or experienced this that were brave enough to say, yes, this has happened to me. And in the middle, you have what I call the silent majority who are listening right, who are taking this all in and feeling a bit uncomfortable, but they're listening and they're trying to learn, right? So that was that aspect of it. And off the back of that, we've started a whole range of things, a good workplace policy, all sorts of things like that. And one of these things was the microaggressions campaign. Now, <clears throat> we like to think as a profession that we're something special, that we're exceptional, that we're different to wider society, and we're not. People don't like to hear that. But if you look at the rates of discrimination within our profession, it's exactly, it reflects what you see in other professions and other parts of society. Microaggressions is not unique to the veterinary profession. Um, the NHS have done huge campaigns on it. Lots of different organisations have done campaigns on this. Microaggressions is not a new concept. And yet, as you say, there's been some controversy since it's come out in the profession as if this is a new word, as if this is something that BVA have just made up. And it's not. And the reason we did it is that microaggressions are not intentional, right? Someone comes out with an overt racist, sexist, misogynistic, homophobic statement. Everybody goes, whoa, that is not okay. But there are phrases, turns of phrase, words that we use or may use day in, day out that we just don't really think much about. But if you're on the receiving end of it and you hear it all the time, it builds up and it builds up. It has this cumulative impact. And that's what microaggressions are about. It's not the intention of your words, because most people are good people. They're not going to go out of their way to upset you or harm you. But it's the impact of your words. And just to think about what, what you're saying. That's where it came from. To try, because we know that having good supportive teams matter. How can you feel supported in a team if you know, you're discriminated against? Or if, if the team member is continuously using the same language that they don't see as a problem. But it is really impacting on you. And so it happened, it came out. Um, and again, I think we have three lots of people in this. The people who go, thank you, we really need to talk about this. The really loud people at the other end who are trying to rubbish it 
for lots of different reasons. And I suspect Rosie would better explain this to, than me, but I suspect the reason they're trying to rubbish it is it because it's really, really uncomfortable to think that you might have actually harmed someone because you don't go out of your way to be uncomfortable. And that's where the, the words wokery, snowflake, get on with it, all of that. That's where all that comes from. And then I have to say, there is a silent majority in the middle that have gone, oh, I hadn't even thought about this. Okay, how do I navigate this? And the problem I'm now seeing is that these people in the middle, microaggressions isn't about telling people off or having a go at people for saying the wrong words. It's about creating an environment where people can be comfortable going, I know you didn't mean to use that phrase, but I really, I really don't like it. And, or, you know, it hurts me, it harms me, whatever. That's what this campaign was about. But that really loud group of people trying to rubbish it all and are making people in the middle feel terrified of, of even engaging in it in case they get told off, accused of being something that they don't intend to be. And so, I mean, look, I would have much rather that this was a campaign. Everyone went, OK, great. But as I originally said, we're no different to wider society. And this is the exact same response you get in wider society. It is just unfortunate. Some of the voices at that end of the argument that are just not reflecting on what they're saying and the harm that they're causing. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I was talking to a friend this morning about American politics or just politics in general. And actually, we'd watched this hideous documentary about the Capitol riots. And, and when you watch that and you see that that section of, of society who decided that that was the right thing to do, they shouted extremely loud. <laughs> but that, you know, what he was trying to say was that's not that's not reflective of the whole of the Republican Party. They don't all want to do that stuff. And I'm not. But what I'm saying is that there are always going to be extremes in every sort of section that we look at. Rosie, I'm interested, I suppose let's start then with, I want to make sure that we talk about all of those parts of um, of the voices that, that, that Danielle, that you spoke about. Um, obviously, particularly, I think, you know, most importantly, uh, to focus on the people that actually are affected by this this thing. And, and I would potentially then throw out the argument that the people shouting the loudest are the ones that actually don't get affected by this stuff at all. Um, is that fair, Rosie, do you think? It's really interesting when you think about who's affected, because that's very much where I come at this from, in terms of I have this incredibly, I said at the beginning, I think my job's the best job in back the people I get to work with. I think it's the best job in back for two reasons, in that I get to, it's a huge privilege to listen to people when they're going through tough times, and one of the things that I think a lot of people who do that, who work with people who are going through tough times in various different ways in life, it can make you want to change bigger things or make you want to understand those bigger issues, not necessarily because you're changing them in that one interaction, but it gives you a purpose that's broader in life that I don't want to just be um, firefighting on this. I want to help prevent some of this for people. And so it interests me where some of that pain and that difficulty comes from and what contributes to it in case we can prevent any of it. And as you were speaking just then, it reminded me of one of the very first research studies I ever did in VET, which was uh, looking at mental health among veterinary students. And we had an incredibly high response rate in this study that I did. So pretty much everyone who was at that school at the time in this one study group that I was looking at took part and we were looking at people's experiences of mental health and people's experiences of distress and this group had been through a number of really difficult things that not every year group faces and they'd had a particularly tough time and 
And there were a large number of people who were rating very highly on validated scales of distress. And I picked up with a number of them in a statistically appropriate way in interviews. And one of the things I explored with them was, have you spoken with other people like peers? Because we know that peer support is throughout life one of the best types of support you can have. So when I say peer support, I mean support from people who are normally around you. So like your friends, um, maybe your work colleagues, people who are kind of on a level with the kinds of things that you're doing. That's an incredibly powerful and effective form of support so I was interested in have you ever told anybody around you about this and almost universally they said no I haven't because I'm the only one who's going through this and there was this sense that everyone else in their year was doing brilliantly and no one else was having such a bad time and no one else would understand it and so I've always been interested in that sense of isolation and loneliness that people can have in that when they're going through difficult times and how we can help to alleviate that so how we can help to connect people who are struggling and so I've kind of always listened when people talk to me about I'm not able to talk to other people or other people around me don't know I'm always interested in what's led to that whether it is a belief that other people haven't been through it or whether it's actually I've tried and there are reasons why I can't speak about this and that second reason is one of the reasons why I'm interested in microaggressions particularly because and in wider discrimination, because when you ask people in vet life, in other contexts, in research, in all of the contexts that I end up having the privilege of speaking to people who are going through difficult things, very, very commonly, in fact, the answer you get is, no, I can't talk to people about this or other people don't know. And a lot of the time, it is not an irrational fear that's driving it. Sometimes people kind of have this idea that, oh, people don't talk about stuff because they have an irrational fear that someone's going to judge them or someone's going to treat them badly or someone's going to make fun of them. And actually, sometimes that's based on evidence. So it's based on things they've witnessed. So they've witnessed colleagues making a comment about a client with a protected characteristic or they've witnessed certain types of language or they've witnessed things that would very much be described as microaggressions or or humour and actually that in itself is inhibitory in terms of them being able to talk and so that to me is kind of what calls my attention to it as this microaggressions issue specifically being so important because it has a real effect on real people and if something is really affecting real people then who are we to say that it's not important exactly and that's the but for me that's the that is the essence of this that it's not it's very easy to say well it's just a or it's just a, it's just a don't take it so seriously or blah 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 yeah but yeah okay but that's easy for you to say right because you're not the one that is actually at the end of the comment and I think that is that's the point and I think that I can never understand what you go through as a woman because I'm not a woman you can never understand how what I go through as a homosexual man because you're not a homosexual man and that's fine because we can't you know there's some things you can't control but I don't understand what it is to be you know what I was a what you know and I, I know this is maybe slightly different but I was watching that the testimony the testimony uh from Azim Rafiq um in parliament this week I mean my lord but can I tell you I have heard language like that before I know someone who is in a cricket team this is really true and there there are nicknames like that right now happening right now right now 
hideous hideous i've heard those words i and when it was when it, when it was on the tv i was like oh my goodness me i've i've actually heard that being said and i just so this is all real stuff but i think if you're not that person on the receiving end of that then how you know how can you know and daniel i suppose the point of the campaign i presume was then to educate people that actually that does affect people but then you've got people turning around and saying well i mean that's not that bad you know you read the comments on a on a page on a poster and i know you've produced a lot of literature and i'm not being critical of that but i'm just saying you know you've got you've got the comments in front of you and you read them and think um what's the problem with that you know what that again snowflake don't take it so seriously what are you getting all right up about that's not really that bad but that's i think we're missing the point if we're if we're thinking like that right yeah absolutely so i think if i make a, a couple of things so the the comments on the posters are there to make you think, right? Because not all of these things will be obvious if you have not experienced them. I, I wouldn't necessarily appreciate that some of the microaggressions um, home, uh, pro, uh, ho, are problematic or homophobic. Why would I? I'm a straight white woman. I, I wouldn't understand it. I do understand why some of the ones about gender are problematic. But here's the interesting thing. If I, I went back and I said, people find it uncomfortable, to think that there might be a problem. It has also been interesting to watch, even on microaggressions that are related to an individual's own characteristic, you will see them say, but this isn't this bad. This is, what are you talking about? And the classic one that I've seen repeatedly, and I'm, I'm speaking about this one and not the others because I can relate to it as a woman, is the one about having a career and children must be so difficult, right? It is difficult. And that's what everyone keeps saying, going, well, it is difficult. Why is that a microaggression? Because it's the wider context of it. Because you probably have a woman that is doing her absolute best at work and doesn't want to be identified as balancing both. She doesn't want to be patronised and say, oh, well done, you managed to achieve that, even though you've got caring responsibilities. And the wider context of it is, why is it that that's only something that's, you know, directed at women? That's because wider society disproportionately expects women to do caregiving duties. You know, there's a wider issue here is the woman on which the, um, the, care, uh, the caregiving falls on disproportionately, not always, because there'll be someone listening going, well, no, I, yeah, fine. But disproportionately, that's the truth. And therefore, if you have the opposite and you have your man that stays at home to look after the kids or, or does most of the caregiving, all of a sudden they're weak, they're not masculine. So, right. So that microaggression is of such a big problem. And yet there are women looking at you going, well, yeah, of course it's hard. Now, I don't have children right? The one that bothers me is when are you going to have kids? It's none of your business. I'm here doing my job. Can you just respect me for my job, please? And people just go, oh, but you know, your biological clock is none of your business. You don't even know if my biological clock has finished. You don't know if I want kids. You don't know if there's some horrible story behind why I can't have children. So why on earth should we be even having these conversations? And then when we're talking, and, and for me, that drives me mad. It really drives me mad. Um, every time, Every time I do something, it's like, but you know, you need to have children soon. Who said I need to? I might want them. I might not want them. It's nobody's business. So why can't you just judge me as someone who happens to be a woman in a workplace? Why does it have to come into it? The same with, why does it have to come into it whether the woman has a family and is balancing caregiving duties? It, it doesn't need to come into conversation. It might need to come into conversation around flexible working and things like that, but it, it shouldn't be linked to a woman's capacity or capability within her career. But interestingly as well is when we look at, when the people who look at these posters go, oh, come on, it's not that bad. 
I commonly hear various things. It's a joke. It's banter. Um, I'm not meant to offend. This isn't. This isn't about offence. This is about harm. And this isn't about curbing someone's free speech because you're perfectly. You can go and say whatever you want, wherever you want. That's what free speech is, and that is why you see the discussions around these posters the way you see it. No one's curbing free speech. What I do not understand is why you would look at these posters. Fine, you don't quite understand them, but someone tells you it is harming people. Why would you keep going? What are you gaining from keeping going? I just don't understand. And this is the bit that I am personally really struggling with. I try to have rational conversations with people and say, but do you, I'm going to go back to woman. Do you have to ask a woman when she's going to have kids? Do you have to? You don't. So it's, it's no skin off your nose if you're not asking that question. But to, to a woman, for example, with fertility problems, or, you know, I have a very close friend that if you were to ask that question, it would be so, so harmful, not offensive, harmful to her mental health. So if someone, if, if someone has just put up, this might be a problem. Why still do it? Yeah. Why can't you just be a decent problem, a decent person and stop? I don't understand. No, but, and, and actually, honestly, when you say it like that, like, I'm like, I mean, I mean, that's it. I like, I think that's when it, fundamentally, it's doing people harm. It doesn't matter whether you fully understand that or not. It doesn't matter where you sit at home and think, yeah, but it's just that bit of banter. It doesn't matter what, so you need to park that and just accept that the facts, as Rosie said, the facts are, the data is it harms some people. And so therefore, stop doing it. Like it's not, it's almost a no-brainer. In fact, it's a no-brainer. And actually, I just want to say one actually interesting, you've said so many interesting things that, you know, about being a woman and about being asked when you're having kids. But actually also, and I've witnessed this a lot, I have worked with, multiple women who are very successful whatever that means academically as you know as far as let's say veterinary specialists who have not had children and I've heard on multiple occasions the presumption is the reason they are as successful as they are is because they have not and they've chosen we have not had children and therefore we can dedicate our lives to veterinary medicine. What a load of shit. And the thing is, no one's, I, I, I guarantee not a single one of those, probably men, <laughs> have, you know, they have no idea what's going on in the background there. And again, those women may have fertility issues, have gone through very deeply painful things to do with their decision not to have children. And the presumption is that they're just all career mad, like, whatever. And, and, I, and I feel like I've slightly derailed it away from microaggressions, but we'll come back. But there is, there is really good evidence for what you're saying out there. If you look at, <clears throat> I can't, I don't remember the stats off the top of my head, but you, if you look at CEOs of big companies, right, the vast majority of men who have made it to the top have families and have children, right? Because that caregiving burden falls on their wives, whether they're current or ex, doesn't matter. It falls on a woman. Disproportionately, the number of women that have got to the top do not have children. Why? If we were going to be a truly equal society, it should be pretty equal because it shouldn't matter if it's the man or the woman giving, the, you know, being a caregiver. It should be equal opportunities to both. And we're talking as if this is just a bad thing for women. It's not. Because for men out there who genuinely want to be the stay at home dad or are happy to go part time in order to, to look after kids, they are seen as less of a man, less masculine, less successful. So this isn't just about the harm to women. It's also to men. But we probably should head back to microaggressions. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 
sorry. That was my fault. I took it off piece. Um, anyway, actually, I could go on because I and we'll talk about that another day. Anyway, so um, <laughs> Rosie, so we're talking about um, yeah. So back on topic. Um, we were talking there about um, I suppose fundamentally, you know, coming back to this um, uh, this idea that we are sitting and looking at this topic we're looking at these phrases that are sort of examples of microaggression and we're looking at maybe um jokes satire you know all this kind of stuff you know we're looking at stuff that is ultimately meant to be funny a joke we're really not we don't mean this seriously but we're clearly having a very deep effect on some people with this joke, this satire, whatever. What, I think, what fundamentally do you think the answer to that is? Because we really do have this, this, this one side that genuinely is like, just, you know, just lighten up. So do, do we just need to lighten up then? Is that, is that the answer to this? So it's such an interesting thing, Scott, about the microaggressions and the humour side. And actually, the the one thing that I did have a reservation about when I was contacted by BVA about whether I would write something about the mental health microaggressions that they'd got on their poster, they said, would you write something about this? The only reservation I had was, should we talk about microaggressions when there is so much outright discrimination and bullying in our profession around protected characteristics so should we talk about the minor stuff when the big stuff is still so overt and that happens in humor as well and I thought about it for a little while and then I thought yeah we should and it's important that we do talk about the small stuff because it opens the conversation into the bigger stuff as well and it highlights how much we have to do in the bigger stuff and so I was like yeah we should do this even though the big stuff is still a big problem and I think that's something I'm very aware of when I talk about microaggressions. When we talk about these kind of small everyday things that can aggregate into much a much bigger problem, and there's an idea in ethics that small harms can aggregate to a bigger harm that's greater than the sum of their parts, um, which is important in microaggressions. But one of the things I'm also aware of is that some of that humour isn't actually a microaggression. Sometimes it's outright bullying or it's outright discrimination. And, and, you know, if it was looked at under equality law, if it was looked at in those kind of contexts, then it would be interesting, I think, to see what the outcomes would be in terms of that, because some of it is just okay and in terms of people I get called I've been called woke during this whole thing and other things and it's interesting when you look at the history of what woke means as well so um woke means being aware of social injustice but then it came from particularly being aware of racism and actually being aware of and alive to social injustice and racism it really concerns me that our profession wants to weaponize that word as a slur, which it has happened in wider society too, but that speaks to a problem in wider society. And if we're doing that as well, then we have a huge amount of work to do on this and we should all be paying quite a lot of attention. Um, so really when people try to use that slur against me, it just really called to attention, gosh, there is a huge amount of, there are a huge amount of issues around awareness of these topics that to use that slur against somebody whether you know its meaning or not is is in itself problematic and so you sorry people have said that to you and I, to you as well Daniela yeah there was a vet there was a vet record um cover 
when I was president, where I'd said, I am proud to be woke. It's not exactly what I said, but it was how they paraphrased what I had said, because it is in our profession being used as a slur. And all I said was, I'm proud to be aware of what other people go through. Why, Why is that a bad thing? No one's yet come back to exactly. me with an answer. And I think sometimes there is, it, it highlights a point that kind of interests me in terms of why microaggressions are important when there's still so much discrimination out there. Because actually when you're challenged by some of these things that are less clear or are feel ambiguous or maybe aren't experienced by everybody with a certain protected characteristic, but are experienced by some as harmful, that the, one of the great strengths of the concept of microaggressions for me is that it, it raises questions about our own attitudes and our own awareness. So if someone says to me that, you know, this is uncomfortable for me, why are you saying that? And I hadn't been aware of that. It gives me a chance to pause and reflect and think, well, what is it that I don't know about this topic? What is it that I need to go and learn about and find out about so that I understand it better? Because clearly, I don't fully understand it or I don't understand it as much as I need to at the moment. Um, So for me, that's really important in microaggressions that they raise questions for us about our own attitudes and our own awareness about topics that we may not have personal experience of. But again, that's the point, isn't it? So that's the point of doing a campaign about microaggressions is because, oh, hold on, we don't all, we don't, we, we need to understand better. We all have something to learn about this and that, but that's the whole point. So again, sort of getting rid of this immediate like over what a load of rubbish well actually no open your mind and and let's think about why we're talking about this right i daniela i wonder if i can see you at home with your head in your hands at some stage maybe on more than one occasion actually over the last couple of years (laughs) potentially but do you not at some point do you do you not have moments of like i mean what why am I, why 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 did I bother? Why did I bother? Why? Because, why did I bother? Because there's people out there then that need me to bother. That's why. And a bit like what Rosie said. I was put I was put in a very privileged position, right? I at the age of 34 was made a BVA officer. Youngest ever, only fifth woman. I only had 3 years, right? I only had 3 years to do it. And I was already what some people would call a trailblazer. If I couldn't use my voice to help those who needed people in leadership positions to speak out, what the heck was I doing there? And it was a promise I made to, I met lots of these marginalized communities, lots of these support groups, and I met them and I made a a promise to them. I promised them that I would follow through because for years, people have made promises because it looks good on paper, because it makes a good media article. And then they've just left them by the wayside. They've harmed them. They've not stood up and protected them. So I was like, I'm going to make this profession a better place, however long it takes. And I wasn't, I wasn't naive, right? I knew that I wouldn't have finished it by the end of three years. But, I, but compared to where we were at the beginning, we would never have been having this conversation three years ago, ever. And so, yeah, I've had my head in my hands. But there are a couple of things that I've noticed as it has gone on. As Rosie said, this is the small stuff. But the people questioning the big stuff are the same people questioning the small stuff. They're the same people that do not have the capacity to reflect, which is astounding to me. We're in a profession that we're supposed to reflect on CPD, reflect on mistakes, reflect on adverse events. We're supposed to be continually reflecting on what happens in our lives and our careers in order to become better vets, better people. And yet, when it comes to this subject, the same people, whether it's the big overt discrimination or the small microaggressions, can are incapable of reflecting 
will call us woke snowflakes will tell us to get over it tell us there's not a problem there is a problem but it's really uncomfortable to think that you might be part of the problem and you know i have my own biases um you know my, my other half has one you know I, i've said something once and he went do you think there might be a bit of a bias and i kind of sat there i was like well probably and, and it was really uncomfortable because i spent my whole life to, you know my whole career going we need to stop doing this um but there are so there are two things I think I would like people to take away from this. One is for the leaders in the profession. Change has to come from the top. Grassroots efforts alone are not going to be enough. It will take too long for it to be purely grassroots. Leaders have to be committed to listening to the people they represent, not shutting them out, not imposing their own views on others. And if in the 21st century you cannot be a reflective leader, I would question whether you have, whether you should be in leadership. Is as simple as that. So that would be my first step. So if you are in any position of leadership, that doesn't mean like where I was, that might just be in your practice. You know, that might be just your team, your vet team, your nurse team, your reception team. If you are incapable of reflecting and if you're dismissing how other people feel, whether you think that's an appropriate way to feel or not, you probably don't deserve to be in that position. You shouldn't be in that position. It's not modern leadership. And for those in the middle, right, those in the middle that are scared of saying the wrong thing, if it comes from a good place, it's going to be fine. You know, it's going to be absolutely fine. People can tell whether you're coming at this from a good place or a bad place. And if it comes from a good place, even if you make mistakes, say the wrong things, it's fine because you'll build the trust of the people around you that they'll go, Daniela, that wasn't okay. I'm like, okay, really sorry. I don't understand why. Can we have a chat about it? And they'll either have a chat about you with, it, with you about it or they'll send you off to read something somewhere. So for those people in the middle who are watching this whole spectacle unfold in front of us, who are scared to go, do you know what? I don't really understand some of these things, but I see why they're saying it. Say, say that, say that loud and say that proud, because actually it drowns out the voices of the people that refuse to accept there's harm being done. It brings forward the voices of the people in the middle who are reflecting and going, I'm not entirely sure what I need to do here, but I get it. There's something I need to do and I need to learn a bit more. The people who, who, you know, face discrimination, face microaggressions, will see it for what it is, coming from a good place and wanting to learn more. And we can only change if we work together, grassroots and leaders. Again, and just I just want to coming back to this really fundamental point for me as far as understanding this today better, is this idea that there is harm being done, and well, let's not let's not shy away from that. That is the problem, regardless of what you're you know views are that that's what's happening to the people that this is affecting in some way and that's so important for people to keep in mind so um now so rosie i think you know there's no doubt that some of the reason for continuing to have this conversation today is sparked by some conversations we've had and some conversations off the back of the fact that there has been some negativity or or some uh, some you know, discussion created off the back of this, which Daniela, I'm sure that's what you meant to happen. I mean, it's it's great that it's it's. But I know you. Yes, I, when I say discussion, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's. We knew there's... it was going to be controversial. Yes. If I'm really honest, I am disappointed. I, I expected it to be controversial in the bulk of the profession. You know, the 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 grassroots of the profession. I I expected more from leadership would be my response. And that is where my biggest disappointment in all of this is. 
And I hope if there are, if there are leaders out there listening, and I'm free yes. to say this now because I'm not a BVA officer, but if there are leaders out there listening who who at some point have said, oh, yes, we're absolutely behind diversity inclusion. We're absolutely going to stand up with BVA against discrimination. All I'd ask you to reflect is, is say, where were you when we needed you to come out and say, we support this campaign because people are being hurt? I think for me, that's so powerful, Danielle, and it, it really strikes home for me something that matters in all of this, which is about values, because part of how I found, I suppose a way to live as a vet that has meaning for me is working in line with my values. And that's a very selfish, very personal thing, but knowing what my values are really helps me. And one of the values that matters to me is courage. And courage is being willing to confront things that are difficult, that might be painful. And that's exactly what being able to go into this kind of conversation is about. That actually, yeah, it's going to involve some things that are difficult for me, that I learn about myself, that I might not like it when I see it. But, you know, being prepared to do that, I think, is is what being courageous at work is about. And I think that's much more important than things like popularity or banter all of those things and I actually I actively warn you graduates I say when you see banter that's actually kicking down and it's on a power gradient and the power gradient goes down to somebody who's marginalized whether that's a client um, whether it's a person with a protected characteristic whether it's someone in a less powerful position in vet than you are whether it's someone who isn't shielded by anonymity even whether you're kicking at a person who's named and you're not I say if that banter is happening I said it's worth just thinking about is that cruelty or is it humor and it might be both cruelty and humor but I say if somebody is prepared to do that to somebody less powerful than them they will be doing it to you as a new graduate. And I say, absolutely, they'll be doing it to you when you're out of the room. You are just as vulnerable as those other people to that cruelty. And also, I think I think that is funny enough. So I'm very fortunate in that I spend a lot of my time with people who are very courageous when it comes to stuff like this. And do you know what? They're incredibly inspiring. I'm very lucky to spend time with them. But it's not that we all sit around seriously not having fun. I think working with people who have integrity and who have values is incredibly rewarding, incredibly enjoyable. And it's very possible in vet to have huge amounts of humor and fun and moments of lightness that don't hurt other people. And I think having humor with integrity and courage and having values is so much more important than a popularity contest. And I think when you kind of get your head around that invert, it frees you up from so much of the difficult stuff that can kind of go on. We know that humour is a form of social control in terms of satire. It's a way of making things okay or not okay to speak about. And when you push against that, you can change what is okay and what isn't okay. And there are lots of things that I would like to change in vet that at the moment hurt people that aren't okay that we could change. And so that's what I see this thing about. But I think, and it's, but it's that, I love that, you know, I mean, it does come down to values and, and, and aligning values with your workplace and all that kind of stuff. And, and I do, the problem is that I am, I'm sitting listening to what you're saying and thinking, God, you know, I can think of so many times where, you know, I have not said, and I'm, I'm just talking broadly, I've not said something because, but then how will that, how will that affect 
me god so i've said it's so selfish i mean it's so selfish when i say it aloud how will that affect me how will then that people portray what what, how will that affect my business but but so many things i think oh i've got to stay in my box because it's not okay to 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 speak out and, and different things and and that's so shameful actually i feel so ashamed of saying that and feeling like that but equally you know we're we're still in a profession where the younger generation are coming through with new ideas and different values and different ways of working and different ways of being. And actually, in many, many circumstances, that is being downtrodden still because it's deemed as weak or flowery or flaky or, you know, we're still dealing with that, you know, and I think, and I I experienced, and I know that's not specifically, again, Daniel, you're going to be like, he's going off in tangents, stop it. But we're, I, what I'm saying is it's still, you know, top down. And actually, I, I completely now, well, not that I didn't agree with you, but I completely get what you're saying. Top down, actually, this leadership's part of what you're saying is so, so important because actually that's where a lot of this change will come oh, from. I, I right? think it's, like, it's so much easier to for me to say things like I've said from a position of privilege, you know, I'm, I'm in a situation in my career where, you know, I'm more financially stable than maybe I have been in the past where I have lots of people around me who care about me and who give me the validation that I need in life. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's shameful to be human and to have worries, but I think it's really important to kind of be able to share those with other people so that we can, support and we can help and we can organize and you can be allies in change even if you're finding it hard to to say things out loud and I think partly what drives me is selfish too and that I've experienced some pretty horrendous discrimination at points in my career and I remember one in particular um, where I hadn't felt able to speak to many people about it because of aspects of what was being done to me and almost nobody spoke for me and I never want anyone else to be in that position. And that's one of the things that makes me stand up even on days that I'm tired or even on days when I've got loads of other stuff going on and I haven't got time to get into an argument or a situation. I just think, you know what, I don't want them to be on their own. I don't want them to be standing alone. I want them to at least know that there's one other person with them. And I think that's really important to me because I've been in a situation where that was different. And I think that's something that's so important. If you've been through something hard and you can transform it and kind of break a chain of bad things happening to people, doing bad things to people, I think breaking those links is really important too. And I think... So I just I just want to agree with Rosie. You know, I came into this profession um, through a very different route. I have a very different background to what your traditional vet looks like. Um, and, I, and I say traditional, and I mean it that way. If you look at the demographics, I don't fit. Apart from being a woman, I don't really fit the demographics. And I just remember not feeling like I fitted in. I just remember feeling like people like me would find themselves in a really difficult place in the profession. And that's part of the reason why I started doing what I started to do. I happened to then unexpectedly find myself in a position of leadership or I was like well I need to I need to do something with this but there are others that will pull the ladder up behind them and I'm very determined not to do that I got to where I've got and now I need to help others climb up and actually you mentioned the the younger generation I actually think the future looks incredibly bright with our younger generation they are coming through so much more socially aware and that's not just of the people within the profession their clients wider society and any profession should strive to represent this. Any profession should strive to represent the society it serves. And when I look at the younger generation, they are incredible, right? They might be, by certain people, being called 
woke, snowflakes, whatever, but they're not. They are caring people who understand the society we live in and want to make it an equitable and fair place for everybody. So I think the future looks bright, but we should not have to wait for the, for the younger generation to be in positions like mine for change to happen. Others who are already in those leadership positions should be reflecting and looking back. And I think it's very easy. And it, this isn't just for us. You know, if you look at, I find intergenerational relationships fascinating, absolutely fascinating. All different, or if you look at it, all different generations behave the way they do because of the society that surrounded them when they were growing up. And, and that's why, you know, you talk about boomers, gen, I'm a millennial, you know, all sorts of things. We all behave in a certain way because of we're a product of our environment. But if we just stepped back and tried to have open and honest conversations with each other without, without feeling like the conversation is just we're trying to criticise or attack, we're not. Everybody, I hope, most people in our profession wants the profession and the world to be a better place. If the microaggressions campaign does one thing and makes people stop and think and have conversations, respectful conversations, then we have been successful. It's so powerful. And I, I, was, I just want to have one little thing, which is that I was doing some, I've spent most of this week talking to recent graduates who were out there in practice. And between, I think, five weeks and a year and a half graduated, so quite a couple of different groups of people. And I was doing like a training session, like I sometimes do about transition and what can help in your first years in practice. And I stopped at one point and said, does anyone have any questions about this? And one of them came back and said, do you think it's always going to be like this? And they were meaning about mental health, about burnout, about stresses, about because we've been chatting in this session about well-being and being happy in practice. We've come up some of these really difficult topics. And they said, do you think it's always going to be like this? And I said, no, I don't. And I said, the re- part of the reason I don't think it is, is because of the change you're going to make, but I'm not going to leave it all to you. I'm not just going to sit there and see this hope in the future. I want to be part of something that's better. And so, yeah, absolutely. But it's it's giving people who kind of look at us as a profession and have come in with all this enthusiasm and all this motivation, and they're amazing. They're exactly what we need. People often say to me, oh, we're recruiting the wrong type of people. And it's like, why not make a profession that's safe for all different types of people to come into so we can actually have strength and diversity? And why can't we give them some hope as well? You know, the fact that they're you know, a few months into practice and they're saying, is it always going to be like this? It just... You know, I want to be able to be honest in my answer that no, it's not. We are going to make this better. No. And actually, when I speak to you, I always, I, I'm just listening to you going, yes, I mean, I believe you. And I really do. <laughs> so I do. I, I really believe you. I really believe you. I believe both of you. Um, so if you were to, Daniel, if you were to, to if there was a, if there, it's so hard, I, I feel, again, maybe not a good, good question. But if there was to be a take home message for you about this what would that kind of take home message do you think would that be i think there would be um three sorry you wanted to take home message but you I think there's can three. do three um, <laughs> i think one there's a message to the leaders you have a duty to be reflective you have a duty to live up to the values that you claim to have so that's the first thing if you're in a position of leadership whether it's individuals or an organization just question whether you're living up to your values especially when it comes to this campaign, you might find you're not. And if you're not, how are we ever going to move forward in a timely fashion? Um, to those who microaggressions affect, who have had, you know, who have been on the end of it. And interestingly, sorry, I've, I've, I've realised that I've been on the end of one that I've never really 
that I didn't realize the where are you from one right the where are you from one is another really controversial one um it's not just the where are your children the where are you from right I'm British I was born here grew up here educated here I'm British I happen to have Portuguese parents right who emigrated here but the amount of times of where are you from I go London where South London where Vauxhall and they keep going it's like but this is where I'm from right you hear that all the time it starts to question whether people actually believe you belong here so I got distracted again. Look, uh, it was you first. Now it's me getting distracted. Look at us. But um, for those of you who are affected by microaggressions, um, I hope you feel that we are supporting you. I hope that you feel that there's change coming. And if you don't, please, please, please reach out to me. If something's going wrong, if we're not getting something quite right, just talk to me. I have no problem with that. You can come and tell me I'm doing a terrible job. That's great. Or you can come and tell me and say, this is great, but what about this? Come and speak to me. To those people in the middle, please, please, please do not be scared of getting this wrong. You can't get this wrong. If you come at this with respect and integrity and honesty and really wanting to make the world a better place, it's fine to get things wrong from time to time. People will get that. So leaders, pull your socks up. Be leaders. People in the middle, it's okay to not be quite sure what you're supposed to say. This is what this whole campaign was about, is to start these op open and respectful conversations. And to those of you who have been affected, I hope I and the wider I, BVA, are doing enough. And if we're not, tell us. We'll fix it. It's, yeah. I, I mean, it's, yeah, good. Three, I think three, you couldn't have just done one. I felt that that was unfair. Um, Rosie, do you want to do m multiples of take-homes? <laughs> What a brilliant structure. Yes. I, of course, I'm going to copy Daniela's structure because it is amazing. <laughs> and I think for me, I want to start with people who are experiencing microaggressions or experiencing discrimination. And I think one of the many things that the kind of the, the noisy fight back against this or the silent majority don't get is the level of the harm that people experiencing discrimination can face. There are huge health outcomes, massive, massive health inequalities for people experiencing discrimination, massive mental health impacts, massive physical health impacts, massive life outcome impacts. It is completely exhausting. And one of the things that I worry about sometimes when there are these kinds of conversations is that people living it sometimes almost feel like it has they get so caught in the crossfire and they get so harmed by everything that's being done along the way that they they feel like they have to be the ones to fight it all or society expects them to be the ones to fight it. And absolutely, I just want to say that we're there and we care and you just need to survive it. Um, let other people do some of the fighting because um, it absolutely is the people who are not being discriminated against job to change discrimination. We absolutely must not leave it to those people who are already marginalised and already struggling. We should include them if they want to be included, but it should not be their job. They have enough to do already. Um, so I just want to say that I see you and I know that it's real. And I think this whole thing about, oh, it's just banter, is immensely gaslighting to those people. If you're experiencing everyday harm at work or in other places and someone says, oh, it was just a joke, that's incredibly gaslighting, which is a form of harm in itself. So, so that's my message to them, is that... We all keep trying to tell people that it is not your job to fix this. And also, thank you. Um, 
for trying in our profession and making our profession a better place. Um, for the people who are sort of more quiet, maybe the majority of people, I would just echo what Daniela said. And I, I think it's about having a little bit of courage, being prepared to be, hey, this is going to be an uncomfortable process, but for a very good reason. It's nowhere near as uncomfortable as experiencing this stuff every single day as discrimination. So absolutely, it's something you can do. And also just go at it from a slightly humble position of wanting to listen. Because if you listen through a lot of this, so you don't go in with preformed opinions about what's what's going to be right or wrong, you actually go in and listen. Um, a lot of the answers will be there for you and you'll be able to find a path through it. So listening is massively important. Um, and for people in leadership, again, I would align it with the value of courage that actually, you know, yeah, it might affect popularity. It might affect, you know, other things, but, but what's more important, you know, looking after other people, looking after our profession or stakes in popularity. I know which is more important to me. Gosh, you're both very good. I'm just, you know, honestly, what a brilliant, honestly, brilliant. Well, listen, I, I, you know, we normally, we, we normally round off the podcast with, with kind of a, a series of, you know, quick fire questions. And we've, we've asked these of Rosie before, and we maybe don't have time, Daniela, to put you on the spot with all of our usual random questions. But I do wonder if I, if you can indulge me and I can ask one of them to you that I've asked, you know, I, I've asked to Rosie before. We talked about both of you being extremely inspiring women. Um, and honestly, and I really mean that from my own personal point of view. Um, I wonder, Daniela, if you could share with us um, who has inspired you. Oh, there's a vet called Kate Everett. Very few people have heard of her. She's a GP vet that I saw practice with as a student. Um, and at one point, when I was a few years graduated, I worked for her. She is one of the most incredible women I have ever met. People. She's just one of the most incredible people I've ever met. And, you know, it is only now that I truly appreciate why she's so incredible. It's not because of her clinical skills, although she's an amazing exotics vet, and that's part of the reason why I went into it. But it's because of how much she cares, right? And I can see it now perhaps wasn't as obvious to me at the time, but just seeing how she spoke to clients, even those difficult clients or those clients with, from different cultural backgrounds, she never had a bad word to say about anyone. She always reflected on the people that came through her door and she always did the best by them. And then obviously I watched her, you know, have her own practice. Her staff don't leave. They don't leave unless they're going on because you know, to, to do something specifically else or moving geographically. Her staff don't leave. Her and her husband's staff, but yeah. I'm, I'm going to give her the credit for this. <laughs> There's a reason for that. And that's because she is a kind, empathetic, courageous woman um, who has her own, you know, we all have our own personal problems as well. And despite all of that, she continues to be my role model to this day. She'd be exceptionally embarrassed to hear me say this. You know, she would she would be mortified. I can just see Kate's face now, bright red, going, oh, no, 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 no. But she was, is, continues to be, and will forever be absolutely incredible. And I have no doubt I've got to where I am today, in part because of Good her. Good answer. And again, you know, we talk about, you know, that that I was chatting to someone the other day about the talking about the 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 minority in the middle. You know, just people who do a really good job actually of being 
and doing the job of being a vet, actually. And that sometimes I feel is unsung. How about we just sing about the people that are actually doing a really good job of doing this job, right? You know, and you don't have to be X, Y, or Z. You can just be really good at doing that and a good person. And that's great. Good. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And we won't let her know that you said that. So um, we'll keep that quiet. (laughs) So I'm just, so uh, to finish off, I mean, I, 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 I'm just, I'm honoured to be able to be part of this discussion. I am honoured to be able to, to in some way, um, just continue that conversation because it clearly needs to be continued. Um, and hopefully um, we will um, keep moving forward, as you say, and um, with the power of these amazing vets that we have coming into the profession um, as well. I think it's, yeah, I, I feel very much that we are uh, unstoppable in that way. So um I have a lot of optimism too. Um, so thank you both for taking the time to talk to us. I, I, I really do truly appreciate it. Um, it's, yeah, it's been wonderful. So thank you. Okay, so starting a discussion today about hypothyroidism. Now, this is a condition that we really, truly are going to be seeing every day in practice. It's one of the most common, well, it is the most common thyroid disease in dogs. And actually, it's one of the most common endocrine diseases in dogs with an overall population prevalence of about 0.2 to 0.8%. The, we're talking about disease that's within the thyroid glands. We, as we know, the, the thyroid glands are glands that sit either side of the trachea uh, in the upper, just under the larynx. Um, usually two separate lobes, so one on each side. That's not the same for every species, but certainly in, in our cats and dogs, that is where they, where they sit. And the thyroid glands are uh, tasked with producing lots of different things, but uh, notably T4 and T3 which are the main thyroid hormones that we are concerned about. Um, the, as with a lot of hormones, they're bound to proteins, but it's the free bit that's the bit that's actually metabolically active. Now, T3, which we don't talk about as much because we don't really measure it, is more potent than T4. Um, about 60% of T3 um, is produced actually in the peripheral modification of T4, but Regardless of that, we know T3 is more potent, but actually when it comes to what we measure in practice, T4 is is what we know and love as far as what we're practically measuring in these patients. Thyroid hormones can do lots of different things. And, and, and this is really important to understand when we're thinking about the clinical signs of hypothyroidism. The effects of hormones can be quick medium term or actually long term effects so they um will modify some things within minutes and hours but actually some of their the, uh, the nuclear binding of these um hormones will modify gene expression and actually will cause much longer term potential effects um in the body you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, uh, it, really important to remember that, especially when we're looking at the clinical signs and sometimes how long it takes for some of these clinical signs to then go away again once we reverse uh, the condition. And as with most endocrine diseases, thyroid hormones are under the action of negative feedback. And really, when we're talking about most of the glands in the body, so things like the adrenal glands or the thyroid glands, they are, well, uh, and, and notably the thyroid glands, they are under the control of glands higher up. 
So they are under the control of the pituitary and the hypothalamus, which sit in the brain. So the the hypothalamus releases its um, releasing hormone. The pituitary then releases its stimulating hormone. And that causes the thyroid glands to release T4, T3, etc. Those circulating hormones will then have a, a negative feedback on the hypothalamus and pituitary and tell them to stop producing the releasing and stimulating hormones. And a lot of the glands in our body will work in that sort of uh, in that sort of way. the The important thing um, uh, to remember is that um, we uh, we we spoke about T three. Uh, and we're saying it's very sort of metabolically um, active, um, but then we're saying, but we don't really, we're not really using it, you know, in practice. You know, why, why is that? Um, and I think um, there's limited diagnostic value uh, for uh, in in measuring total T3. Uh, it actually has a low sensitivity for picking up hypothyroid patients. So although it's there, we don't find it useful practically. So um, thyroid hormones have an an effect on lots of different things, metabolic rate, growth, the development of the central nervous system. um, They have some effects on the heart. They affect cholesterol synthesis and metabolism. They they can uh, stimulate uh, uh, blood cell product uh, red blood cell production in the bone marrow, and because their effects are extensive, then the possible consequences of not having enough high, uh, thyroid hormone are also extensive. And so fundamentally in hypothyroid dogs, and we really are mostly talking about dogs here, hypothyroid cats are really very uncommon. We're talking about a decreased production of T4 and T3. And that can either be because of a primary problem within the the thyroid gland or a problem higher up within the pituitary and the hypothalamus. And so we say primary being thyroid gland, secondary being pituitary gland and tertiary being hypothalamus. But to be really honest, we're, we're, we're mostly talking about primary problem within the thyroid gland. We're very much less commonly talking about any sort of problem higher up in the pituitary or hypothalamus. And then the problem can either be congenital or acquired. And again, the majority of the time, we're talking about acquired disease, not congenital disease. So very rarely you will see congenital hypothyroidism. Very rarely you will see secondary or tertiary hypothyroidism. Most commonly, you're going to be seeing acquired primary hypothyroidism. So hopefully that helps make it slightly more straightforward. Just to touch on congenital disease, so um, you know the uh, problem is is clearly a congenital problem, usually within the thyroid gland. Many of these dogs may actually pass away at birth or be undiagnosed. Um, there have been reports of central, um, uh, so not primary, central hypothyroidism in a family of giant schnauzers but again, relatively uncommon. Um, and the, the congenital form of hypothyroidism um, 
you know, can also be um, associated with uh, pituitary dwarfism because they will often have a, 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 a TSH or ty thyroid stimulating hormone uh, deficiency. We also see congenital hypothyroidism within toy um, fox and rat uh, terriers. So really often associated with very specific breeds. Um, ultimately, this is a, a condition you will see uh, relatively uncommonly. Um, so uh, one that I wouldn't... Uh, worry about too much. The, the much more significant disease process that we're concerned about here is acquired uh, hypothyroidism. And again, uh, when we're talking about acquired, we're usually talking about primary disease within the, the, the thyroid gland. And, and that's, that primary disease within the thyroid gland is usually uh, lymphocytic thyroiditis. Um, so it's a, a destructive autoimmune process within the gland itself. And the actual cause of that is unclear. You know, why does the body turn against itself? We don't uh, really know that. Um, so a primary problem within the thyroid gland, in order to make a definitive um, diagnosis of hypothyroidism, I suppose you potentially would have to take a biopsy of the thyroid gland. We don't tend to do that. So we... Um, tend to measure things in the blood that tell us that the thyroid gland is 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 failing um we're commonly measuring total t4 but there are other things that we can measure um and and as this is, is an immune mediated uh, process uh we now can demonstrate that that some patients will have measurable thyroglobulin autoantibodies um, that seems good because we're saying this is, you know, a, a immune mediated disease. So it would be good to measure this autoantibody and, and demonstrate that that's what's going on. Only about 50% of hypothyroid dogs have circulating, um, thyroglobulin autoantibodies and, and that, uh, so they can vary quite, um, uh, quite a lot. Um, and actually what's interesting about the thyroglobulin autoantibodies is that actually um, they may be positive at, at the beginning of disease when actually the clinical signs are not that severe and can actually become negative as the disease progresses and becomes more clinically apparent. So they're not reliable for, for making a diagnosis. As far as breed predispositions for acquired hypothyroidism Ultimately, um, I mean, any, I mean, you know, breeds that are maybe predisposed are um, English setters, golden retrievers, Rhodesian ridbacks, uh, Great Danes, beagles. But but ultimately, this is a disease that can affect any uh, breed of dog. Um, they tend to be middle aged or older. So the mean age of diagnosis is seven years. It would be very unusual to diagnose dogs younger than that or more unusual but actually the range of disease uh, of hypothyroidism affecting patients is actually from uh, ha you know um 6 months to 15 years so um don't strike it off your list of differentials but it's uncommon in dogs less than 2 years of age the clinical signs are extremely um, uh, variable. 
Um, so they can sort of creep on slowly, not be that obvious to begin with. There's no pathognomonic features. Um, metabolic and dermatological abnormalities um, uh, occur concurrently in about 70% of affected dogs. So that combination of, of changes in metabolism and dermatological are, are very suggestive. And actually the, the, the derm changes are the most usually the most concerning for the owners um but a variety of and, and they can see see those signs obviously but a, a variety of signs beyond that cardiovascular neuromuscular reproductive ophthalmic and gi signs the when we say metabolic features we're we're talking about the fact that thyroid hormones have an effect on metabolic rate and a decline in metabolic rate is going to be seen in 80% of dogs. So lethargy, weight gain, exercise intolerance, dullness, um, and even generalized weakness. And 40 to 50% of hypothyroid dogs are overweight. But what I think we just must be absolutely, totally and utterly um, sure about is that we are never, promise me, you are never going to test uh, a dog for hypothyroidism based purely on uh, weight gain. Um, hypothyroidism is the cause of obesity in only a very small amount of dogs. So yes, hypothyroid dogs might put on weight, but when investigating obesity, flipping it on its head, actually it's not a reason primarily to be to be testing for hyperthyroidism there has to be more than just weight gain on the table the dermatological signs mainly affect hair growth um, and again actually the vast majority of, of hypothyroid dogs will have uh, some dermatological changes hair thinning dry dry hair coat alopecia that's usually that classical endocrine alopecia af affecting the, the the flanks bilaterally and the thighs. Um, so non-peritic bilaterally symmetrical um, alopecia that tends to spare the head and extremities. Um, when you clip them, the hair doesn't grow back. I'm saying most of them are non-peritic, but if they get secondary skin infections, then obviously they can be peritic. Um, the um, they can get uh, hair loss in areas of friction, so around where they wear the collar, um, and they they will often get this uh, rat tail um, uh, uh, appearance with hypothyroidism. Um, their coat can often go dull and often lighter in colour. This is particularly evident in, in dogs like Dobermans where they almost go like a kind of yellowy colour, orangey colour. Um, and they may have dry, scaly skin, seborrhea, otitis, hyperpigmentation. And, and again, they may be peritic if they get secondary bacterial infections. So just to finish up, um, the um, cardiovascular effects. So thyroid hormones will have a direct effect uh, on the heart but actually the link between hypothyroidism and heart disease particularly dilated cardiomyopathy is not that great so for instance um the prevalence of hypothyroidism is is no higher in dobermans with dilated cardiomyopathy or uh with or without congestive heart failure compared to those 
uh, with non-cardiac disease. So yes, thyroid hormones have an effect on the heart, but how significant does the heart suffer in hypothyroid cases? Speaking to Liz, our cardiologist recently, um, you know, dogs with DCM, she probably would um, test hypothyroidism for hypothyroidism in uh, the particularly in breeds with a DCM phenotype. But the link is not strong between those two things. And then just to finish up neuromuscular stuff, um, so we talk about neuromuscular disease related to hypothyroidism, but actually, again, sometimes the link is not that clear. Neuromuscular problems uh, with hypothyroidism can range from facial nerve paralysis, laryngeal paralysis, megaesophagus, um, vestibular disease. For me, the most common times that I will be checking thyroid status is with um facial nerve paralysis, laryngeal paralysis dogs, and megaesophagus. Um, and again, the link is not always great. They don't always resolve, even if you do treat the hypothyroidism. But those would be sort of classic uh, neuromuscular diseases that I would be checking for uh, thyroid uh, status. Massive thank you again to Rosie and uh, Daniela for chatting. And as always, a massive thank you to, to you for taking the time to listen. Um, if there's any feedback you have or, or any topics you would like covered on the podcast, please always feel free to drop me an email. To find out more about what VTX do, then head over to our website at www.vtx-cpd.com. And do check out the show notes for the important links to the work that VetLife do and also the um, important campaign that the BVA are involved with uh, to do with good uh, veterinary workplaces. So do check all of those resources out. Thanks everyone again and I look forward to seeing you next time. Take care.